Hello and welcome to the Courage to Be podcast, where we explore how to raise your game, lean into discomfort and have more impact and purpose. I am your host, Sinead Millard. Hello, everyone. Excited to share with you the very first interview on the Courage to Be and the guest today is Pat Lamb, Director of Rugby for the Bristol Bears. There's quite a lot to say about Pat's background in rugby, both as a player and a coach. Pat won the 97-98 Premiership with Newcastle Falcons and the 2000 Heineken Cup as captain of Northampton Saints. He also spent five years as head coach of Auckland and four years as head coach of um, Blue Super Rugby. Pat talks to his time in Connacht, which of course is a great story to hear, um, given the success that he had in Connacht. But generally, the real takeaway for me and the real enjoyment for me in this interview, I interview Pat in person, um, Pat has a very unique and genuine capacity to be able to extract the learnings and the opportunity for growth when it comes to the tough times that he has experienced. And for many of us, yes, there's that theoretical concept of being able to see the tougher times or the painful experiences that we have and experience them with a growth mindset but in reality that's challenging. Um, Pat draws on his time in Auckland when he was sacked as a real marker of growth. Um, This was the year that Pat made the biggest growth as a coach and the year that gave him absolute clarity for moving forward and in fact driving his new philosophy based around clarity of vision, leadership and culture. Three pillars which played a huge role in Pat's success with Connacht, which we talked to more obviously um, within the interview. But genuinely I think that whether or not you're a leader of an organisation, an individual looking to up your game or increase your performance, Pat has some really useful insights, tools and straight talking stories that I hope you will enjoy and find as valuable as I did. Pat, you are very welcome. Kira Margaret, Sinead, and hello, good to see you again. I like it, impressive. (laughs) (laughs) So Pat, we talked briefly um, before, before the interview. The main reason I want to speak to you today, Pat, is because I see in you somebody who embodies moral courage. Yes, you've got a very impressive biog and, you know, You've done a lot, lot of things in rugby, both from a player and a coach point of view. Um, but I think anyone who puts themselves, as Brené Brown would refer to as, in the arena is courageous. And I think this is no different when it comes to the professional sporting arena, in fact, even more so, yeah. um, whereby you're regularly confronted with the outcome of winning and losing. So on, on that note, maybe taking us back to your early years as a player, Pat, how did you handle winning and losing back then as a young man? Yeah, I suppose the biggest thing for me and why I got into sport, it was, it was an avenue for me. Uh, obviously, I loved um, outside where we were brought up. I was um, brought up in New Zealand and everything is outdoors. And, you know, self-esteem is, is is built from when you you're successful at things and so when you're out there and you're playing sport and you realize she's i can catch a ball and kick a ball and actually i can run around a few of these people and everyone's going oh i want you to be in your team and you know those schoolyard when um games and they pick the teams and and you look back at now because pc it's not ideal where kids go i'll have him i'll have him and they leave it down to the last player yeah. you don't really want to be the last player 
well, I suppose I'm thankful through sport that I never ended up being the last player, but it then became, I suppose, I didn't realise it at the time, but a lot of my um, uh, recognition or self-esteem or mm. things that made me feel good was, was, was doing well in sport. Um, and so when I started to play games, obviously there's winning and losing and everyone likes to win, but initially I remember the early days, it was just about enjoying myself. Mm. Um, my, my grandfather said, every time you score a try, Patrick, I will give you 50 cents. Mm. And so I went hard out just trying to score tries. And I think I think it was more about how many tries I got when I was younger rather than winning or losing. But I, no, it was a really good upbringing I had, but I think the sports side of it, um, certainly in the early days, it was just about enjoying myself. Yeah, and that's interesting because as you talk about that relationship with winning and losing, perhaps as a as a player, how did that evolve as you moved into coaching? Yeah, I mean it. It certainly it probably evolved more so as I got older as a, as as a player because um, you know the school I went to was um, a, a very big rugby school. And, uh, and we were successful in there, but you could see the importance everyone started putting on the outcome. Mm. And, um, and I, when I look back now, I, I, and it's sort of helped me with my coaching, as I, as I realised there's so many times I would come off the field and I would be said, oh, well done, Pat, you're awesome, da-da-da, and all the adulation. But in my head I knew, actually, I, I could have done more. Mm. And then there were so many times when people would think you didn't play very well or the team lost, and but I knew that I had given my all in that game and I and I realized later and I didn't I, I read a book John Wooden um, superb basketball coach yeah. unbelievable around leadership and values and so forth but he defined l- true success about that peace of mind that comes from the inner satisfaction of knowing that I did my absolute best and I've sort of grabbed hold of that um, through myself and then I use it certainly with my coaching and with my teams that um, you know, if you're getting your judgment or your your your, your self worth based on what other people uh, think, it's mm. not really true success. Because even if people say you're fantastic, you know whether you could be better. And even if people say you're not really good at all, mm. you know you know you can you can be better as well, and uh, and that you are. So um, that became a, a real focal point for me. And so I, I got away from outcome focus and really started to talk about process and what I can control and and what I can do as as a as a person as a player and certainly as a coach and Pat <coughs> did it take you long to develop this I guess it's internal validation isn't it was it was it with experience have you got a, a particular method that you draw on you know, how do you tap into that it, I suppose it, it um it, it's certainly experiences and and, and over time and um, and 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 when you go through losses, and, and don't get me wrong, I was, uh, you know, I, I didn't do not like losing, mm. and um, and um, um, but certainly through winning, you appreciate. Um, uh, sorry, through losing, you appreciate winning and so forth. But so many influential people, whether it's coaches or sports psychiatrists or um, you know mentors, and um, they guided you through. Uh, winning and losing and understanding it and then everything seemed to be coming back to the same message mm. it's about control what you can um, you can only be the best of what you can and and a lot of these cliches they you know because everyone says them but when you actually relate it to your experiences you realize over time it's true 
Yeah, that, that's interesting when you say related to your experience. So do you think that irrespective of what it is you learn or the mentors that are in your life, do you have to live it out? Like, can you maybe take us through some of the harder knocks oh, you've had? With, with, without a doubt. I mean, you know, we, we, we're parents now and, and I've <laughs> cringed down my parents. I, f- I feel like I sound like my parents as you, you know, the, m- the moment we had our first son, uh, Michigan, myself and Steph, and it's so funny, like... Um, Every, yeah, your parents and your in-laws are all telling you what to do, but you're like, no, I've got to go through this myself first. And, um, and, and it, you know, people can share and, and everyone means well and they're all trying mm. to guide you and help you, but you have to actually feel it. You have mm. to feel and go through that experience to get the true learning of it. And, but I think it's more about understanding you're in this experience um, and because and if you don't and then, you know, uh, it can lead to to, to, to to different outcomes, whether it's, you know, confusion, whether it's frustration. But when you hear um, and, and understand some concepts about how you can work your way out of a, a, um, a situation, understand that it's a really good learning, mm. then I've, I've pretty much simplified everything down to two questions now. Mm. So through that is what have I done well in this situation and what could I do better? Whether that's driving, whether that's coaching, whether that's parenting, whether that's, you know, everything I ask myself that. And, um, and, and that's, um, you know, been significant in, in my journey uh, to, to where I am now. And a good, time, a good mentor said to me, Pat, good times will never change your character. When things are going really well, uh, you actually stay the same. But we are who we are through all the different challenges and experiences that we've had. And rather than see it as, oh, thank goodness I got through that, you take the learnings out of that because it will happen again in a different way through life. That's what life is. That's, what it, that's what's going to happen. You're going to be faced all of these different challenges. But every one you go through makes you stronger if you can learn from it. And it doesn't mean, see, it's, um, so if you look at it as, all right, I'm, I'm going through a tough time. We're losing games or I've lost a, a loved one. Um, it doesn't mean that's going to be easier, but when you mm. see it from a mindset of, well, hold on, well, this is an opportunity for me to be stronger. This is an opportunity for me to grow and be more mm. mature. Then um, you can see it from a different light. Doesn't mean the situation you're in mm. is um, going to be any easier, but it does mean that when you look at it, you go, well, if I go through this process and I ask those questions, I am actually going to be a stronger person when I get at the other end of it. There's almost like a benefit to the pain. <laughs> without a doubt, without a doubt. And there's numerous testimonies and example of people, you know, that we know, that we read about, that are, you know, that are doing really well, that talk a lot about the tough times that they got, they've been through and the challenges and certainly in sport, you know. If we look at your journey from Auckland to Connacht, right? Yeah. So it's almost for me that felt like a little bit of a fairy tale story, right? Can you talk us through that for our audience? Yeah, well, I think I, think I came from um, a team where I got sacked. And um, it was interesting and, and everyone said, oh, disaster, you know, I was poor. And, and, and I'm still, when they go back and they talk about my time with the Blues and Super Rugby, which is my home team, and everyone goes, oh, you know, they, they rolled their eyes. And in fact, the year before I got sacked, it was, it, was the mo- it was one of the most, it was the last time they'd made the finals, but everyone focuses on the one year, mm. which was like the perfect storm. Mm. But I actually turned around and I said, that, that year is the year that actually um, uh, I made the biggest growth as a coach. Mm. And it gave me absolute clarity. And if I hadn't have had that year, 
I would never have gone to Connacht because it made me really clear that I would never ever work for an organisation or a team where I was not clear on what their vision was, um, what they wanted to achieve, and also that they um, um, had to make sure they had a complete understanding of how I go about doing things. And mm-hmm. so, um, so I got sacked there July uh, 2012. And then at the end of that year, I was asked by Samoa uh, Rugby to, um, they had a big tour at, in the UK at the end of the year mm. to Wales and um, France. And it was while I was over there, that's when I started to get approached by clubs about, you know, um, would I be interested in coming and coaching them? And Connick was one of them. And it was funny, I remember um, uh, I was in Wales and, and we just, uh, it was the week before we were about to play Wales and um, I got a phone call from my agent saying, oh, Connacht would be interested to have a chat with you. And I went, Connacht, Connacht, where's that, where's that? He said, <laughs> Ireland. And then I said, all right. And then, of course, in Ireland, I, I'd, I'd known about Leinster and Munster and, and Ulster, um, not so much about Connacht. And then I had a quick look on the map. And all right, yeah, no, okay, willing to go out mm. there. And they said, but you just meet in Dublin. So that was easy. Yeah. So um, they arranged for me to, on our day off. Um, when we were in Wales, I flew from, uh, funny enough, from Bristol Airport right. uh, to um, to Dublin, where I met uh, Conor McGuinness and um, I'm one of the directors and the CEO at the time. And I came over there and first thing I said, what's your vision? What do you guys want to achieve? And they said, look, we want to be the best Irish province in Ireland in five years' time. I said, oh, I like that. Yeah. And, um, uh, and then we started to talk and I said, yeah, and I was able to explain this is how I do things and to me it's got to be more than a game you know I, I don't believe work should be uh, you know just work it, if, if you if it make it a, a real call and a real passion and something about it then um, it becomes more enjoyable to do and that's why my coaching philosophy has to align with the vision and certainly with their dream about being number one I was like oh great this sounds good mm-hmm. and um, and then but it still wasn't my first choice because I'd met um, a few of the other clubs. and But at that time, most people don't assign, um, they don't uh, give out those roles that early. And then about on June, um, January, January the 1st, 2nd, got a, we were walking with my wife and they got a phone call from the agent and said, Connacht, they've offered you a job now. Wow. And I thought, oh, okay, yeah, this is great. My wife was all excited. She said, this is the place we've got to go. She'd never yeah. been to Ireland. But she, she just knew. knew. <laughs> she yeah. just knew. She'd been praying about it and said, "This is the answer <laughs> to prayer. We got to go to to Ireland." And I, but in the next few days, a few things started to happen with the other clubs and stuff, and they weren't going to be able to make a decision to march. And and Steph said to me, "Pap, this is the one." And um, so we came over, and uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. So that was my intro, and that's how I ended up going there. And and the the tough time I had in Super Rugby which was actually my biggest grown moment, which gave me clarity when I came to Connacht of why um, and what I needed to do there. Amazing, amazing. And I think just to, obviously, you know, as part of our introduction, we've shared the success that you had in Connacht, but Connacht won their first ever major trophy, the 2015-16 Pro 12, um, under yourself as head coach. You talk about culture as being love. Yeah. Was this a big part of your success in Connacht? Um, I believe so. I, you know, I have a, a little equation which I believe works everywhere. You right. know, whether it's in business, uh, family, um, or sports team, certainly, is I believe the vision drives the leadership. 
and so the leadership are making decisions on how they can achieve the vision rather than oh i want to do this and i think we should do this or you know uh, so rather than personal things it's all about the vision then the leadership then can drive the culture when they when they do that and then the culture can then drive the performance and then that's what leads the legacy so the first that's why i had to ask the question what are you trying to do you know if we just over here just play rugby and see how we go then it's a waste of time so then what it does it keeps everyone accountable from ceo board head coach players staff everyone's um, accountable to achieve that vision um, the big issue I had when I arrived was that I found out that I went and asked everybody, what's the vision of um, Connacht Rugby? And um, no one knew. Mm, so I yeah. said to the CEO, uh, to the guys who I met, I said, fellas, you realise that they wanted to do a big culture change. Um, Eric Howard was very clear there needed to be some change in the way we do things. And I was listening to them arguing and da-da-da, and I put up that, that the equation and I said, fellas, before you can get the culture change, you have to have clarity on the vision. We've got to know which way this bus is going, and then we can all get in behind it and make a decision. And, be, and it's a choice. You don't have to get on the bus, but at least if you do, we know we're going. So we had a big vision, and we ended up talking about inspiring, you know, the community through rugby success with, mm-hmm. and, and 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 that was great because we knew that we had to bring the whole community with us, and then yeah. all of the decisions about taking the team out to. You know, um, Kotamara, uh, Altamayo, um, you know, also all areas of Galway, Roscommon, Leitrim, um, Sligo, was all because that's, we made those decisions because that's what the vision was. Mm. And um, and then the whole culture side of it, and I remember putting it up when I arrived there, I said, fellas, this to me is true team culture. Boom, and I put up the word in the L-O-V-E, love. And yeah. you can imagine all the, <laughs> the macho <Irish>. man. And, <laughs> ooh, love, okay. <laughs> And I said, but no, but when I broke it down, I said, fellas, if you look at love um, and a true definition of it is sacrificing yourself for the benefit of others. So I said, think about all the people you actually love. Would you do anything, anything so that they could benefit in everyone's course? And I said, it's the same when you're on the ground. And, you know, mate, people don't, a lot of people don't like playing rugby because of the contact. To put your body on the line, to clear out, to look after your mate. I said, that's love. You know, to cover a guy in defense, that's love too. It's, it's. You know, the word's been used wrongly in so many different ways, but simplified, it's just, you know, you would do something to help someone else. So that's what we, we really strive to do and, and build, and, 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 and they still remain doing it too now. Amazing. And was that vision co-created with the playing group part? Or where does that, like, how does it marry up? I think the, the biggest thing there's, um, in that group, we all had um, the players, we had the staff, we had the board, we had, um, you know, stakeholders all get together and we all looked at, you know, what is what is special about the West, what is special mm. about Connacht. And I think, you know, it was around the pride of where we've come from, you know, real belief that we can we can be better and we can succeed and, and a vision and a drive to take us forward and so we and and community was was massive. I think that was that that's why I love the place, and and I you know I do because it reminded so much of my own um, you know family and, and being a Pacific Islander. 
you know, everyone's your cousin. You know, he's, they're not actually your cousin, <laughs> but they are because extended family is massive. We love being around people and community, and, and that's what I loved about the West of Ireland is that there's a real, you know, when I asked guys, I did a presentation because I knew nobody up there and said, this is what's important to me. So I did a presentation about who I am. His, uh, these are my children, my family. This is important to me about, you know. And then I asked everyone else to do it over the season, and what came back was... Mm parents and grandparents and I, I realized then and a lot of boys got emotional you know and and I realized this is so similar you know we, we're from the other side of the world but community and family was massive so I knew oh this is awesome and the more we drew and got family involved got community involved it just grew and grew and grew and um, um, it was a special time and it, it, and it happened to be conic rugby but I think it can be, you know, even in your own family, you know, mm. the more you connect, um, the more you look. And you, and you go through challenging times. But the, as I said, you know, I always say my wife, I'm privileged when my wife gets angry at me because <laughs> she never talks the way she does to other people. So I see that as a privilege because <laughs> yeah. she knows me and trusts me and loves me. So, yeah. And um, Pat, back to, you know, the courage to be and in particular yeah. the courage to be disliked. In your role as head coach, I imagine you have to phase people through the organisation at times. Um, can you help us understand the process of maybe knowing that it's time for someone within the group to move on and how you manage this process? Does it mean that at that time maybe you're not the most loved guy in the building on a particular occasion? Yeah, I, I think um, it is the most difficult part of the job is mm. is you know keeping people on or moving people off um and selection you know we got everyone dream yeah. your, your dream is to be um to play as an example or um to be a professional rugby player and when you are making those decisions that it's no longer going to be with the team that you're working with it's it's extremely tough so the only way to prepare for it is to have ex extreme clarity on wh where we're heading um what um, we're trying to do what is the game plan or the vision and then real clarity on jobs and then you're judging people on their performance rather than them as individuals and I've let some uh, people go who are unbelievable people but my duty as a head coach is to ensure everyone wants the team to be at its best and um and if people aren't performing, and you're, then you've got to help them and go forward, but then it gets to a point where actually we can, there's someone else who could do that job better. Mm. And um, and then so they might need to come in. And so when you keep it back to, if they've got clarity on their job, then you can ask them. And, and self-awareness, I believe, is the greatest tool. Mm. So normally I'd ask, well, on the scale of one to 10, where 10 is your best performance, how do you think you've done? And they know they haven't played well, but I asked them and they'll say, well, maybe it's a five. And I said, okay, then, well, why would you only give it a five? And they could say, well, you know, I know they've missed a couple of tackles mm. and uh, cost us the game possibly. And they yeah. said, well, I missed a couple of tackles. And I said, well, what do you think's happened? And they said, well, as far as what we coach, they said, I didn't get my feet uh, close enough, da, da, da. And I said, okay, well, how are we going to fix that in your skills plan? Then he'll go back and say, well, I'll, I need to do this. Great. So he, he understands the problem and he goes through. But the more you ask questions and the more they're self-aware, the more they own uh, the situation. Mm. And I think um, rather than me saying you are no good, because they're not, it's just they just mm. have the process where they just haven't been able to get the job to the best mm. of, of their ability. So trying to make them self-aware certainly helps, but I think trying to keep it all down to performance and nothing's about being about personal matters.
um, when I, uh, same thing when I came to Bristol, I asked them straight up, what is the vision? And they spoke for a while and then I simplified and said, to inspire our community for rugby success. Said, yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. I've just been able to put one statement to cover an hour's talk about it. And and I remember coming into the staff and I said, right, everyone write down what you think the Bristol Rugby Vision is. And they all wrote it down. It was seven different answers. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And of course, the you know, the commercial had their view, the academy had their view, the SNC had theirs. And then when I put this up and I said, well, this is what Steve Lansdowne um, thinks it is. And they went, oh, okay. And then I said, have a look at every single person who wrote it down. There's about 45 staff. And I said, have a look and see if that vision encompasses what you have. And they went, yeah, great. So we managed to put everything under one that covers everybody. And then we've got it up around the place. But then even in our, in our talk, and we, we reference it a lot, it's in, you know, um, in our actions, we say, well, the reason we're doing this is because of our vision. And the cool thing now, when I arrived, and it was the same at Connect as well, not many people knew what it was, but right now you could ask any player, any staff member, what is the vision of, um, of, of uh, Bristol Bears? And they'll be able to tell you, because you have to live it and breathe it. You, mm. you, it just can't be something that's... If it's long-winded and people can't just be able to say it off the head, then you need to reduce it. Everyone's got to have real clarity. Otherwise, without that, um, it, it causes um, confusion. I also heard you say, Pat, in one of your interviews, that everyone participates in the decision-making process. And I'm interested to hear how you support your people to communicate without fear. Like, what does it take to truly create a decision-making process in which people genuinely feel like they can contribute? Um, I think it's a huge emphasis in relationships, all right? I mean, you go into a room, you don't know anyone. Straight away, you feel your hands sweaty and clammy and you're looking mm-hmm. around, and that's what we've been brought up with. Rather, you go into a room of all your mates, all right, and everything becomes, you know, you don't feel any of those anxiety things. And, and, and as I said to the guys, the more we build relationships, it's not because, and I, and I used to refer to the players, I said, when they want to know, because everyone goes, friendships, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I always ask them, guys, if you are married or you're going to get married, who would you choose as your best man over billions of people in the world? And they'll, they'll give me the person. And I'll say, well, why would you choose this person compared to, you know, all these others? And they say, well, they'll, 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 they'll go through it. And it always comes back to um, trust, the um, mm. dependent um they can depend on them. They got my back. Um, they they'll, they'll be really honest with me. And I said unbelievable qualities, and that's like a ten out of ten. And then when I so when I asked them, well, how well do you know this centre? And he goes, oh yeah, no, we were playing for a while. But I said no. But if you put him on a scale of one to yeah. ten on that ten scale, and remember, if you say eight, nine, you could be he could be your best man, <laughs> or maybe a three. So I'm not saying well, how well you like him or that. It's just how well you generally know them. And then what comes out of that is they get a really good understanding of what real friendship's about. And I said, imagine having that person on the field. It's not because it's nice we know each other. It's because when we're under pressure. It's when things become really difficult. We can be extremely honest and we're not going to get offended. And that's what I said before. You know, like Steph can be extremely honest with me and I can with her because of our, she's the closest person mm. to me and she knows me inside out and vice versa. And that's what you want to try and create. Uh, when you're working with certainly with teams or people over a period of time as we build those relationships then we can we're not afraid to say what do you think this is what I think and I think the other part of the decision making process doesn't matter 
people still aren't comfortable just speaking out in, in, yeah. in, in front of people. So what I always do within teams is I give everyone a chance, say we've presented something or there's an issue, break off in little groups and discuss, two or three, discuss what we've just talked about or what your thoughts are. And then instead of saying, okay, what do you think? I said, what have you guys discussed? What have you guys talked about? It said, they don't feel threatened. Mm. A person doesn't feel threatened to say, um, you know, like at school, I'm, I'm a bit worried to say this because people laugh and think it's yeah. right when in fact yeah. it is right. Yeah. But they, they, they're saying, well, we, we talked about this, this and this and this and I can get a great idea. Awesome, put this up. What did you guys talk about? What did you guys discuss? So that little process of being able to just reaffirm and, and share with a small group and then share what we've spoken about is huge in that decision-making process. But ultimately, you've got to feel comfortable within an environment and, and that's what the leader needs to make sure um, is, is going on. Nice, and actually that leads us on nicely to soliciting feedback. Yeah. So what's the culture in Bristol Bears today, but yeah. generally what's your thoughts on soliciting feedback? Well, as a school teacher, the, the technique I told you there was yeah. uh, was huge, and it's amazing, like people go, oh, this group is really quiet, they won't ask questions, and I said, no, no, every group is, whether it's the Irish, whether it's the English, whether it's the Samoans, New Zealanders, everyone is exactly the same. And I, I challenge anyone, because I, I watch coaches, and as I mentor my assistant coaches, they... They all get up and, and, and when they talk, they go, right, any questions? Anyone got any questions? And they go, <laughs> they go man, no one's, no one's asking any questions. And I said, put yourself in their shoes and go back to when you were six, eight, ten. Yeah. Would you put your hand up? Of course you always got the kids that would. But what did everyone else think about those kids? Which is probably you going, oh, look at the old smarty pants over there, da-da-da-da. So that's why people don't do it. So what you do, whenever you present something or you want a discussion and you want some feedback, allow the group to break off and just talk. It only has to be 30 seconds, can be a minute. And um, they have a discussion about the topic of what we've just shared or what we've presented. Normally have a flip chart. And then again, it's just, okay, what did you guys talk about over there? Bang, da 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 What did you guys talk about? So going through my mind as you're explaining that is, as humans, why on earth are we so petrified to have a voice? That's yeah. that sometimes is the scarier part. And I think to our audience, it's like even hearing the fact that you as a coach need to tap into various different strategies in order for people to communicate. And that's the same for everyone else in the real world who may not have a head coach. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it, you know, it's what can you also say to these people who just who, who are struggling to put their voice into the world? I think the, the the most important thing, and, and it's funny, like I'd say a lot of my schoolmates when they look at me now, um, you know, would look in surprise because I was very shy, very quiet, and I'd, I wouldn't say too much. But the, and, and a lot of it is because we're all worried or thinking about what other people think about us. Mm. And if I went back, if I go back very quickly, I'll give you a quick story on that yeah. one, was um, I was... Uh, as a Pacific Island boy growing up in New Zealand, um, you know, obviously I was in the minority. And Pacific Island, Pacific Islanders generally grow bigger, faster. Yeah. Then. So it, it, uh, I was probably about the size I am now when I was about 12, 13. <laughs> and, um, uh, but I remember at school, um, you know, I used to get mocked a bit because my lips were bigger than the other kids. Yeah. And... Um, and I remember at the time, you know, I used to come home from mum being upset. I wouldn't shout because, again, it was all about being bravo and mm. macho and stuff. Mm. And the other kids, but and sometimes I'd have to hit the kids. And um, But, you know, I'd be upset by it, and, but tried not to shout. Um, but I remember coming home being really upset with mum and saying, oh, you know, mum, I'm not, 
I wish I didn't have these lips and da da da. And um, but I remember I don't I remember clearly when it stopped was uh, the guys these guys were teasing me and some of the older girls uh, who were seen as the cool girls they ever heard it and they said oh no 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 Pat's got the best lips in the school he says people pay money to have lips like Pat's and and it, straight away all of that sort of stopped but what it did for me I remember it completely changed my my thoughts about my whole never again became an issue and and the message that, I, that, that I'd give there is um, yes it's not about you know whatever people think but the encouragement of what those girls did to step in and say something positive which had a massive effect a profound effect on on who I am yeah. and um, and I remember it's 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 because I'm 50 odd now I can look back and yeah. and see all of these these moments for huge changes and what did it all come back to it came back to having that courage as you say of accepting who I am and accepting that no I am somebody who can make a positive difference mm. and I have someone who has a voice and um, um, and and the more um, we hold on to it and focus on those moments um, you know the, um, the the better it is so you know I say to people out there you know um, I, I read some stat eight percent only eight percent of what we truly worry about comes true yeah and um, I, and I'll also say this is that you are special mm. there's no one else like you and I know you might have heard that before but it is absolutely true and you know I always I, I always say if we if we take a moment and when I do talks or speak to even my rugby team I did this at Connacht as well and when we were getting a lot of criticism I said right I want everyone to close their eyes and I want you to think of the first person that comes to your head and so about if you can think of someone who loves you or believes in you and gave everyone a you know I knew everyone had someone and then it was a case of now I want you to think about how you feel when you think about that person who loves you or believes in you and try and put all of that feeling into one word. So I give everyone a bit of time and then I have my flip chart and I go, bang, okay, what have you got? Who'd like to be brave enough to call out? I feel loved. Great. I feel strong. I feel yeah. powerful. I feel confident. I feel blessed. I feel privileged. You know, but when you, um, and so when you focus on social media and negative comments and people saying all these different things about you, you can't achieve and you can't push forward. The moment you close your eyes and you focus in on, as an example, the people that love you or believe you, you start feeling powerful, yeah. strong, confident, yeah. energized, you know, it's amazing what you can achieve. Yeah. And oh, that's what I'd encourage is, there's enough negativity, and we know that, in the old days, only when people would, laugh, would say, I'd hear it in my face, I could do something about it and yeah. be upset about it. But now it's unfortunately everywhere. Yeah. But, and you can't change that, but what you can change is what you focus on. Yeah, and the and discipline of that focus. Without a doubt. And without is that something you equip the boys with as well? Yeah. Yeah, because I mean social media and, and yeah, I mean, there's a perfect platform now for people to shout out when without they need to. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And I see my players, you know, some of them, you know, I, I look at someone like uh, Jack Carty now playing for Ireland, you know, yeah. it's just a great story because when I brought that boy through um, the academy and to the team and I remember everyone said, you need a tan, you need a good tan, you know, we'd let Dan Parks go. and But I knew that um, I needed, to, you know, part of the vision was to bring through a 
um, the indigenous players and, and Jack was from there mm. and I said and everyone goes oh he's he's um, you know he's not experienced and stuff but you know and he took a lot of flack people mm. saying he's not good enough and now when I look at him now playing for Ryan and everyone going oh this guy's great you know and um, and he used a lot you know he went through that moment that is a great example of his growth through tough times and um, you know, being being really focused on not what other people say, but the people that matter and what your job is, what what you need to be able to achieve. And if, and then it comes back to what John Wooden says: is understanding that's true success, not yeah. or what everyone else thinks it is. It's about you. And it's, you know, if you look at that mindset, that that's almost like the prerequisite to be in high performance. It's like you can't can't reach those levels if if yeah. the fo- like the the inputs, the focus, the content we're consuming, the people we're surrounded with, these are these are inputs that if 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 they're if they're out of bounds, if they're wrong, we can't we can't grow without a doubt. So when we talk about a culture, that's the whole thing about the vision. If we got people, like what I look from staff is hot and players, highly motivated, ambitious people that are coachable. That are good people yeah. that want to um, that are good in relationships. If you get that, and obviously they can do their jobs, but if they're highly motivated and they and they want to achieve things, um, then they're always um, you know they're looking to get better. They they want to achieve things, and then you create the relationships um, is, is created for the support. You know, because we're all going to go through tough times, which is why you know we had the connect handshake and we have the Bristol handshake or the hug. You know, you know, we talk about the different actions because it's special, and then we talk about the fist pump. But the best one is the hug, particularly over in England, because yeah. it's great watching a lot of the English boys hug. It's not their norm, you know, <laughs> and there's a lot of hugging going on. But it's great. It's great because we all go through tough times, and there's nothing better when someone discerns that and says, "Come on, let's have a hug," and or "Let's have a coffee," and let's let's have a chat about it. You know, and as I said, it's it's exactly the same as those girls who said. Leave Pat alone. You yeah, know? he's he's cool. No problem. Yeah. You know, and uh, and that special feeling we can create when we come into our workplace, and you just notice you can sit, you can tell when someone's down, or just the fact that we all go and greet each other. That's you know sixty odd different people come and say morning. How are you? And sometimes we underestimate what a particular action can do. So yeah. very often we hone in on how we feel. So you might wake up feeling a particular way, but it might just take that for even you initiating a hug or you initiating a conversation with someone that can shift that mood. Well, <laughs> I, honestly, I, I use this all the time. I talk about three types of people in this world. There's the ones who wake up and it's a beautiful, absolute stunning day, glorious day, sunshine, and they wake up like this. Oh, no, not another day of the sun's here. I might get burnt. I don't really want to see that. Now, fortunately, there's not too many like that. Then there's the second type that wake up and it's... The, it's the, the wind is going and the rain is going horizontal. It's cold. It's, you know, sometimes like goy. <laughs> <laughs> and and they wake up, but they're like, yeah, great, awesome day. No one's going to stop me having a fantastic day. Now, unfortunately, there's not too many like that. And then the third type of people is what generally most of us are like. We wake up in a day, see how it goes, go off mm. the flow. Now, our day... Um, will normally be determined by which one of those two people we bump into first. Mm. So the challenge is to try and be more like the second to encourage people. And if you're more like that second person, the influence that you can have on the people around you is huge. Hence the handshake, hence the hug, hence the showing some interest in people. You know, we all go for those tough times, but you can be that second person that changes the first person into having a great day.
Yeah, absolutely. I remember my time in the US. I think that sometimes yeah. Americans can get a bad rap for their enthusiasm. Yeah. Quite honestly, it was such a f breath of fresh air yeah. in the corporate world. Yeah. And enthusiasm, we are. In, in, in Europe, sometimes it's they don't want you to be too enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, yeah. But it's, uh, well, it can be, like, I, I agree. I, like, I love it in America too. Everyone's yeah. so positive and stuff. But I think the real the real positivity is, is when people care. And, you know, yeah. I have it in my coaching philosophy. People don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care mm. and um and mm. i think that's when it comes to a real level and so the you know the high fives and all that is great and the handshakes is great but having a genuine uh can because you again if you if you want to achieve something whether it's your family or your business you know then we've all got to look after everybody and make sure everyone's uh and feeling important and then we can achieve everything together that's a perfect uh answer to, to wrap things up Pat absolute pleasure, pleasure and thank you very much thank you thank you so much for listening if there's something that you've heard in this episode that has resonated with you or perhaps you think it could benefit someone else then please do share this link or start the conversation if you haven't done so already, click on the subscribe button in your listening app. And as always, I really value your feedback. So please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And for more information, full show notes, links and resources, you can pop over to my website, SineadMillard.com. See you next time back here on The Courage To Be.